Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in Copper Mines Valley, the iconic valley that rises below Coniston Old Man and Weatherland. And I'm in the company of author, illustrator and with a slightly croaky voice today, Mark. Oh, yes, Mark indeed. Mark Richards. Oh, yes, I have a croaky voice. I did test negative this morning, just as my wife did. Uh, it's just one of those weird things. I do tend to get summer colds and I've got one today, which gives me a certain aura. A certain huskiness from Mark today. Some listeners may enjoy that, Mark. Who knows? <laughs> but we're here today, Mark, in this grand arena of fells. I always think it has a, a kind of desolate feel, doesn't it? It's scarred by industry past. Mm, indeed, that's it. The slate quarrying and copper mining over several centuries has left its mark. And the subject of today's podcast, written into the landscape all around us in the abandoned leets in the stone tips and in the ruined buildings. What are we talking about today, Mark? Very specifically about the copper, which was a tremendous source of wealth. And we'll hear from our guest today how it was won, the kind of lives people led here, uh, and the trials and tribulations of an industry that was very much underground. And our guest today will be familiar to listeners of Country Stride. We last walked with him on a very chilly day up Borrowdale. It's Mark Hatton. Very much so. We had the most amazing expose of the wad mines above Seathwaite. Well, I'm sure we'll discover equal magic with him today. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. Uh, this enigmatic valley very bleak sometimes little bit of sunshine out now but there's still brooding skies above us let's set off up the hill to meet again mark hatton Well, I'm beside a fascinating water wheel, which is just flipping around behind me in the midst of the lower part of the Red Dell Valley. And I'm in the company of Mark Hatton. It's wonderful to be back with you, Mark. I remember the one episode so well. Remind our listeners who you are, what drew you to the mining world. Yeah, so my name's Mark Hatton. I live in Ambleside, and for the last decade or more, I've been you could say almost obsessive about the mining heritage of the Lake District. I've been exploring it, researching it, talking about it. And you're now in one of my happy places, which is Coniston Copper Mines. The history of mining in the Lake District is writ large here at a great scale and with periods of great success. So where will you be taking it specifically? Well, what I was hoping to do was try and introduce you to the place in sort of chronological order. So we're going to start with the late 16th, early 17th century mining sites here, and then we will walk from there to the um, 18th century mining site, and then we'll end back to where we are now, which is really in the heart of the 19th century site of the mining and activity around here. That covers three or four hundred years, would you say? Yeah. The earliest mining records that we have here is the very late 1500s, 1590s. People often speculate that there must have been mining and copper working here in earlier generations, right back to the Romans and possibly back to the prehistoric period. But we actually have no definitive evidence of any of that. The birth of the copper mines here that is traceable is to the 1590s. Um, and then it worked very much sporadically during the first half of the 1600s. Then it had a, about 100 years off, really. Started again mid-1700s worked quite vigorously for 30 or 40 years, then it had another lean spell where it was pretty much dormant, um, and then it really entered into its heyday, late 1820s through to the 1860s, when it really uh, was a thriving mining operation. And then it tailed down, like most mining operations, it had a, a steady decline to ultimate closure at the back end of the 19th century. 
What is very interesting here is that the Victorian miners used quite a lot of the earlier infrastructure and the key infrastructure around here is the water management system. Coniston is not blessed with coal, uh, there is no coal in the vicinity, so the power that the Victorians used and the earlier generations of miners used was water. Lever's water is the main headstock of water. That was a, an original natural reservoir, a tarn, but it has been raised up. There's a dam being built there. The dam is itself built up and up and up over the generations. And that provides an extraordinarily reliable headstock of water, which powers all the machinery, just like this one behind us today. This would have been a noisy, clanking site of multiple water wheels, stamps, which are the machinery needed to crush up the rock, men and women and children pushing metal-wheeled wheelbarrows around and hitting rock with sledgehammers. You could probably hear the explosions underground resonating um, as they're blasting the rock underground. Lots of clanking chains and metal buckets being dragged up shafts and what have you. This would have been a noisy, thriving, vibrant place. All life was here. And I suppose that copper was very much in this sort of area, whereas the slate was more round to the south. Yeah, I mean, it, I'm, I'm looking down the Copper Mines Valley, so the slate vein is straight across the valley from left to right as we look down the valley, starting on Hole Rake uh, and then going up the face of the Old Man. Anybody who knows the main path of the Old Man will know you walk past numerous large spoil heaps of slate. But the copper vein is actually, if I look up the Copper Mine Valley rather than down, the copper vein runs from the right across up to Colonel Crag, and then geology has shifted that vein back down towards us, and then it starts again running over what everybody knows as Simon's Nick, over to Lever's Water itself. There's two really worked sections of the mine. There's the Bonser side, which is where we are now, uh, and there's the Paddy End side, which is where we'll be a little bit later. Paddy End is because one of the key resources, manpower, was Irish labour. If we look to our left, there's a row of cottages over there called Irish Row, which gives you the main clue. There was a large immigration from Ireland in that mid-19th century when Ireland was very poor and you know, suffering dreadfully from the potato famine. Irish men and their families came here to work. The Irish manpower tended to live up here rather than in the village. There was always quite a bit of um, headbutting between the Irish miners and labourers and the English, the Yorkshiremen, the Cornishmen and the Cumbrians who worked here tended to keep each other slightly at arm's length if they weren't punching each other on the nose. Just to, so that listeners have got a grasp on it, the, the copper itself, where was it used? Yeah, so, so copper was used for multiple applications. The very earliest copper was often mixed with tin to make um, bronze uh, or mixed with zinc to make brass. And that was used for all sorts of metal castings and machinery and cannons and utensils. Later on, it, it tended to be used more in machinery and utensils like cooking pots and pans. Later on still, it was used for copper-bottoming ships. That was quite a, a significant use in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And then, obviously, as you get into the more modern period, it's using for pipes and wires and what have you. But th this mine was pretty much exhausted. Having said that, copper is one of the most recycled metals in the world. So copper that came out of Coniston is probably still being used in modern machinery to this day, albeit probably in its second or third iteration. About 100,000 tonnes of copper, we estimate, came out of Coniston. Not copper metal, copper ore, sort of refined copper ore. That would probably make about 20,000, 25,000 tonnes of actually copper metal. But that, as I say, is over a 300-year period. So it wasn't a huge mine, certainly relative to copper mines today. This is, is not a large mine. But in its day, certainly at its peak in the mid-19th century, this was the largest copper mine in the north of England and was an important part of the metal production, certainly copper metal production in, in the British Isles at that time. Well, that's set the scene very well, Mark. Uh, we'll rewind the clock and go up the hill and get a bit more of a beginnings of the narrative element, which I'm looking forward to. Well, we found a key moment to stop on our way up the Red Dell. 
actually looking back you get a wonderful view but here you're actually at a significant point there's a little cleft with a cave uh, I'm sure most walkers who come this way probably glance at it and think very little of it but I gather Mark that this is pretty significant in the early story where we're standing today is on the earliest production floor the earliest uh, mill for the mine back to the very early 1600s very late 1500s this is where men who were the sons of the first German miners who came to Keswick in the 1560s came to work the constant copper vein for the first time so these were the Hextetters of this world, as it were? Absolutely. It was the Hextetter family and their merry band of, of mining men. They'd exhausted the copper veins up in the Keswick area and they moved, quite a lot of them literally moved lock, stock and barrel from the Crossway Parish at Keswick to the Hawkshead Parish down here. Hawkshead was the parish church. And we know they moved down here in the 1590s. That's when they start appearing in the local parish records um, and they set themselves to work. The copper vein is just above us. They called it low work um, and they worked that vein at the surface initially and then having proved that it was a productive vein they then set about driving and adit to cross cut to the vein and we're now standing at the entrance to this adit that was dug by hand, no explosives were used in digging this adit in the early 1600s and then they would bring the copper ore from deep within the mountain out of this entrance and then just to our right is the production floor. Very small area relative to the other mills that were built by later generations of, of mine owner. But here we have a delightful processing floor. You can hear the water of Red Dell in the background, which was the power source to turn the wheels that drove the stamping machinery that crushed up the rock and allowed them to separate the copper-bearing rock from the, the non-copper-bearing rock. And then they would take it by pack horse from here all the way back up to Keswick to be smelted, which um, was a fairly significant cost and effort for them. That's a good 20, 25 miles to Keswick by pack horse from here. And you can still see their path winding its way up the side to Hole Rake, where it goes down through Tilberthwaite and over to Elter Water and then over to Red Bank and down to Grasmere and over Dunmel Rays and, That's you know, in, into Keswick. We coming here, uh, Dave and I, we came over Red Bank and we were saying this must be an old route. Yeah. Well, there you are. That was exactly what it was. It was, it was the pack horse route for the copper leaving here in the early 1600s to be smelted back up at Keswick. And the thing with the wad mines, the Germans came. Can you remind listeners why the Germans specifically? In the 1560s, Queen Elizabeth I was determined to kickstart a copper mining industry in the British Isles. Before that, for several hundred years, Britain had been entirely dependent on imported copper. Uh, it's like today, importing oil. You're strategically weak. She knew the Spanish were mustering their forces to attack her kingdom, England, um, and she needed copper for um, armaments and for money. Her balance of payments was very poor because she was having to import copper. She recognised that there wasn't the indigenous skills in the British Isles for copper mining and copper smelting. She had to find where those skills existed. And they existed in the area we call today sort of southern Germany and Austria, where there are some very large copper mines that were being worked throughout the 1500s. She did a deal, basically, with the, the mining company over there to bring people with the technology, with the science, the geology and the smelting technology over to her kingdom. And she gave them carte blanche to go where they chose and they chose to go to Keswick. And that's where the copper mining industry was kick-started. They originally worked in the Newlands Valley and various other mine sites in the Keswick vicinity. When they'd exhausted those veins up around the Keswick area, they then had to come down to Coniston to seek new veins, albeit reluctantly because it was such a long way to travel um, to take the copper back to the smelter. They've built their smelter at Keswick, they've committed to that locality and really they don't want to be mining more than 10 miles away from their smelter um, because it's just too expensive to be hauling heavy rock to the smelter from more than 10 miles away. But as I say, once they'd exhausted the veins in the Keswick area, I think that's when they've had to exploit this vein. Whether they discovered this vein in the 1590s or had been aware of it for a decade or more before we don't know for sure but we know for sure they came here and opened the mine in the 1590s so when the germans arrived what specifically was in coniston because you mentioned hawkshead 
Yeah, so Coniston itself would be a, a very small community. It would have been a small farming community, maybe some wood industries. The main community locally was Hawke's Head. That's where the parish church were, that's where the wealthy people and most of the population would have lived at Hawke's Head. I think originally the Germans came, they found accommodation at Hawke's Head, but that's quite a long commute from Hawke's Head to here. So then they started building houses or renting rooms in local farmhouses um, so they could reside nearer the mine. Later on, when we go up to um, Leverswater, we'll see some really old structures. In fact, there's one behind me, and it is speculated that these were the earliest accommodation for the, the miners to live in in that 1590s period. Well, I'll uh, leave the immediate vicinity of this and climb straight up the slope where I can see that tall structure which uh, is at the top of the original seam of copper. We'll go up that way. We've come up the bank just a little way. We've come to some scree. Uh, it's spoil scree, I gather, but we've got an interesting singular stone set in the ground with a little hollow in it. Can you describe what's the significance of this, Mark? Yeah, so this is what's known as a mortar stone. This is a man's workbench. So the copper-bearing ore is coming out of the vein just above us, and there would be men working with hammers, breaking up the rock that's coming out of the mine to separate the copper element from the worthless rock element. And he's using this as a workbench. So everybody at home can picture a mortar and a mortar and pedestal. It's a sort of hollow bowl. The bird table in the ground. It's a bird table in the ground, and, and that would be slightly raised up from the ground. Obviously, the ground level's come up over the last 400 years. A man would, would sit here, working away, putting lumps of rock into that hollow, beating it with a hammer to break up, and he can pick out the copper and throw away the worthless chunks. And even today, 400 years later, we see his product. Just below us, there's fine lumps of rock, and that's his output. All around this hillside we find these rocks and they're just hiding in plain sight wonderful working tools of Elizabethan miners grafting here all day in all weathers trying to make a living out of copper. It's, it's just astounding. I'll show you some more. Come over here. Climbed a little bit higher, and I do mean little, 50 feet or so, and we've uh, come to an area that looks really intriguing to my eyes. There's a track just above our eye line, and a construction below me, and this is 1600s, would you say, Mark? No, so we've left the 1600 behind. So the early 1600s period is the, uh, the workings just down in the lower part of Red Dell, taking the rock out of this horizon where the vein runs apart. The mine here came to an end, we think sometime around the 1630s or 1640s. It certainly came to an end when the English Civil War kicked off. Being called the Company of Mines Royal is not the best name, best branding to have when a civil war comes and the parliamentary forces all come out of Penrith and, and come to this area. We're pretty sure that the mining ceased in the whole of the Lake District at that time. And then it was in abeyance for some decades. And, and actually the technology, the, the residual memory of how to mine kind of went missing. Quite. Um, and it wasn't here until definitively the 1750s that copper mining started again at scale. And what we're standing beside here is what's known as the East Bonser Wheel Pit. This was infrastructure that was put in by uh, an entrepreneur called Charles Rowe, who owned and ran the Macclesfield Copper Company. And he took the lease over the Coniston Copper Mines in the 1750s and invested quite heavily in building modern technology. So this is a bigger wheel pit. He's had to dig a big trench to fetch the water from Red Dell across the hillside to power this water wheel. And then this water wheel would have done pretty heavy-duty work, winching rock up from the lower sections of the mine and pumping water out of the mine. And this would have worked from the 1750s through to the 1780s, late 1780s, when Charles Rowe basically handed the lease back. Charles Rowe also had a lease over Paris Mountain in Anglesey. His mining company found the Great Lode, which 
there's a clue in the name, was a hugely rich seam of copper. And actually, because there was so um, rich a seam of copper in Anglesey, Coniston got quite neglected. Mm. Um, his smelters were on the Wirral. Uh, and if you can imagine boats bringing copper rock from uh, Anglesey just across the north of Wales and straight into the Wirral, it was a far more hard to bring copper ore from here um, to to the Wirral. It would have, actually where we're standing, we get a great view of it, copper ore leaving here would have had to be taken down to the lake shore by cart. It would have been transferred onto a barge. It would have then been barged down Coniston Water to Low Nibthwaite at the end where there still is the copper key. It would have then been loaded off the barge onto another cart where it would have been taken to Greenodd where surprisingly people might say today if you know Greenodd there was a key there and ships could sail up and be filled up with copper ore when the tide was high uh, and then sailed down around Lancashire coastline and, and, and into the Wirral but Coniston was just a bit too remote a little bit too far away so whilst Charles Rowe did work the copper mines he worked Anglesey far more vigorously. Picking up an earlier thread that you mentioned about smelting in Keswick, was that still going on when this was at its heyday? No, it wasn't, actually. The the smelter at Keswick, we believe, was abandoned sometime in the 1630s or 1640s, possibly as a result of the English Civil War and the parliamentary forces destroying the smelter so that they were no longer paying royalties to the crown. From the 1700s, Charles Rowe, he shipped his copper down to Merseyside, where he had his smelter at St Helens. Um, And then Taylor and Barrett, they shipped their um, copper down to South Wales um, to um, smelters that were operated down there. And fundamentally, the reason why the smelter was in in South Wales is that's where the coal was. You need 50 tonnes of coal to smelt one tonne of copper. So it's easier to take the copper to the coal rather than the coal to the copper. And there's no coal in the Coniston vicinity. There is some coal up at Workington and Whitehaven, but that was really operated a bit later on and was very expensive coal because it was very deep seams of coal. But in South Wales, there was lots of coal. All all the valleys had big uh, coal operations. So that was the fundamental fuel that operated the smelters and turned the copper ore into copper metal. Well, we'll plod on a bit more up onto this uh, lateral path. We've got uh, a lot to see yet. Well, we've come a little higher, and just uh, over to my right, I can see a very substantial, and like I said, the other uh, wheel pit was big, but this is even bigger, uh, and even more impressive is this cavern, great jaws opening into a dark depth. You can hear the echo on the microphone, so you can get a sense. I can see out to Kendall Crag and the fells beyond, Brim Fell and so on, but here, I'm very much inside a mountain. Can you give us the story of where this timeline fits? So where we are now is in the beating heart of the 19th century mining. This is the heyday of the mine because, as I mentioned, Charles Rowe was handed the lease back in the late 1700s. There's nobody mining here for several decades. And then John Taylor turns up in the 1820s. John Taylor's an extraordinary man. He's a mining engineer who is working and advising mine owners all around the country, and his technique is to go large. He raises lots of capital, and he puts in big infrastructure schemes, big wheels, big pumps, big leak systems, big water management systems. And what we're standing in today, we're standing looking out at the old engine, Uh, which was built by um, John Taylor. The old engine was a much bigger wheel than the the Charles Rowe wheel. We believe that would produce 100 brake horsepower, and that had the power necessary to pump and winch to much greater depths. And we're now looking in to where all the pump rods and the winch cables would be going to the top of a shaft, the old engine shaft, and that shaft eventually reached a depth of 1,500 feet Uh, So that wheel had to be strong enough. Even pulling a a 1,500-foot chain 
takes a lot of energy, but then you have a big bucket at the end of it with rock on it or a big pumping, you know, pushing pump rods, 1,500 feet of pump rods, you need a big wheel. And as I say, John Taylor had the big ambitions to put in that size, that scale of infrastructure in this mine. Are there any contemporary accounts of how they operated the mine? Yes, there are. The doctor who was employed, or the surgeon who was employed by the mine in the late 1840s and into the 1850s, a chap called Dr Alexander Gibson, he actually had quite a lot of spare time. Um, Because actually the miners, might surprise you to know, were a relatively healthy bunch. Uh, There was relatively few and far between accidents in these mines. So he had time to write a guidebook, something that you will be able to very closely relate to. He wrote a book called Ramblings and Ravings Around Conestone. And one of the guided walks that he talks you through is to come up to the copper mines and he suggests you go to the officers and ask for a guided tour of the mines. And he describes in this book wonderfully how if you ask nicely, they will give you some old clothes to wear, they will give you some candles and they will take you to the entrance to the mine and they will show you in. And he talks wonderfully about walking with a duped head so you don't knock your block off um, into the tunnel and then he talks about going down a series of ladders thousand foot of ladders or more to get down into the working area of the mine then and then he talks about being in the underworld and seeing these shady creatures working down there who are the miners he describes them banging huge hammers onto metal rods to drill holes into the solid rock and then how they then pack that with gunpowder and then put a fuse into the gunpowder and then put some clay and some small stones into what's known as stem it and then they light that fuse and leg it back up the tunnel and then they wait for the explosion and then they go back and see what they've done you know how much rock they've blasted onto the floor Now, one of the injuries, the common injury, the most common cause of fatalities or your serious uh, disabilities at this mine is explosive accidents. And he describes how if you set a charge and you light the fuse, you should never go back to it if it doesn't go off. But the miners ignore rules like that. They regularly say, oh, what's going on? I load the fuse, but it hasn't gone off. I've left it a few minutes. I'm going to go back and have a look to see what's going on. And the typical injury was when the miner looked into the hole that he drilled and just as he was holding a candle up to the hole and looking in, the charge went off. So the fuse had still been smouldering and the blast would be sufficient to either kill him outright or if it didn't kill him outright, it would tend to take his hand off that he had held up to the hole and take his eye out. And we see um, records of miners who are permanently disabled by losing a hand and, and losing an eye And typically then they had to find another job. So the the Coniston postman had a hook for a hand and one eye. And the really seriously disabled, and it's very sad to hear this, but they would go to Kendall where they would literally beg on the streets without arms or eyes because Kendall was the industrial town, all the shoe factories and what have you, where people had sufficient cash to maybe give a few pennies to somebody begging on the streets of Kendall. Well, that's quite something. We'll leave this shady spot and go out into the sunshine, which is always a joy. Well, we come up a little bit further, actually, across from the, uh, that incredible gaping hole and the great uh, water wheel across the valley. Uh, this is really the upper part of the Red Dell Valley, or Treadle Valley, uh, as uh, a local might say. And uh, I'm come by a fence, and it fences off a hole in the ground. I'll just make an observation. The foliage and the growth around it show you what it would be like uh, in this area if there were no sheep grazing here, or any grazing stock at all. Birch, the heather, bilberries. Um, it's just a, a real mosaic of plants, alongside a bit of bracket, of course. It's a lovely mix of uh, nature, but the nature of that hole is far more interesting to me. Mark, can you explain what that's all about? So here we, we're looking at a, a great gash in the ground, and this is where the copper vein comes to the surface. And this copper vein has been worked for hundreds of years, and this is a very dangerous area. I mean, one thing we should stress 
If anybody comes to walk around the copper mines, they have to be very alert to the risks. There are openings, there are holes in the ground, there are tempting scenes, but don't be tempted in because there's lots of hidden dangers. Um, this is the scene of many accidents. There is a wire fence around these, uh, these big chasms in the ground, but it hasn't always been the case. And for several years, people regularly fell down these stopes. I can tell you the story of one American schoolboy, 17-year-old Alexander Peters, who fell down here in the late 1970s. Uh, I've got a lovely article from the local newspaper describing how Alexander Peters was rescued from this hole. So Alexander Peters came with a group of American tourists, all teenage boys. They stayed at the little youth hostel, which is the mine offices, but converted to a youth hostel in the 20th century. Excitedly, they ran up here to explore the area. And as lads do, they dared each other to jump across this big opening. The first one jumped across successfully. Alexander Peters then jumped across, grabbed a hold of the vegetation, the heather and the bracken, and then it fell off in his hands. It sort of peeled off and he fell backwards down this hole. His friends were, oh my goodness, where's he gone? They ran down to the uh, youth hostel, raised the alarm. This is about six o'clock at night on, I think, a Saturday night. In those days, Coniston Mountain Rescue was still a relatively new and fairly uh, basic outfit. No mine rescue outfit in those days. Um, but they were summoned up here to try and rescue this lad who'd fallen down there. The assumption, it has to be said, was that he was dead. Um, people didn't know what was down there, but they knew it was very deep. You know, many people had thrown stones down there and listened to how long it took before it banged. Please don't do that today. But anyway, um, eventually they rigged up a system to allow one of their members to abseil down. He abseiled down over 200 feet and found Alexander Peters lying there still breathing. This was six hours after Alexander Peter had fallen down this hole. Um, eventually they then lowered the local doctor down there. I'm sure he was delighted with that task in the early hours of Sunday morning. And he found Alexander Peters in such poor condition, he couldn't give him any painkillers, couldn't give him morphine, because they thought that would finish him off. Um, and eventually they rigged up a system to winch Alexander Peters back up out of this hole, 200 plus feet from where he'd fallen. And we've got a photograph from the local newspaper showing his battered, bloodied body being pulled up this hole. Uh, and he went off to Barrow Hospital where he spent months recovering from having broken so many bones. Um, and eventually was shipped back over to the States. Um, and I always think that poor lad now must have pretty bad arthritis. But if you want the really gory one, let's go over here and I'll tell you the story of Thomas Milliken. Oh my God, here we go. Now we've only walked about 20 feet away from that shaft and we've come upon the most enormous wheel pit uh, with rising up from it an equally astounding incline up to a level high up. You know, I think there might even be two up there, but anyway, this is colossal. This is the Great Wall of China in construction terms of my book. Uh, there's so much going on here. Give us a bit of a clue there, uh, Mark. So this is what's known as the new engine. We were a little bit earlier across to the east here at the old engine, and before that we were at the east Bonser engine. This was built in 1850s, early 1850s, and um, this was the biggest water wheel on the set. So this was when the mine was getting deeper and they needed a more powerful winch and pump to operate those lower levels of the mine. And really audaciously, they built it here because the shaft that they wanted to pump water out is right up the hill. So what they've had to do is they've built the wheel here where they can get water to it to power the wheel. And then they built this huge incline called the Thriddle Incline um, to take the pump rods up a steep slope where it then goes into the mountain and then down a huge shaft for nearly 1,600 feet to the bottom of the mine. It's that sort of audacious engineering that the Victorians were famous for, and rightly so, because this is at a scale that really is quite breathtaking. You've got imagining it. In our modern technology, we think of things in the micro sense. This was majestic scale. The risks involved must have been astounding. 
Water wheels were dangerous things. Once you start them, you can't stop them quickly and you want to stay out of the way. But we have an account of um, a terrible, tragic accident that happened here. The account from the Ulverston Advertiser, the local newspaper at the time, tells us quite a bit about how this wheel operated and how the mine operated. Let me read you this from the Soulsby's Ulverston Advertiser. Shocking accident at Coniston Mines. On Wednesday, the 21st instance, a most distressing accident, unparalleled, we are happy to say, in the accidents of these mines, occurred at the above place, attended with loss of life in the most shocking manner to one of the workmen, Thomas Millican Sr., aged 61 years. The deceased, it appears, on the day mentioned, proceeded to his usual employment at the works, an occupation in which he had been engaged for upwards of 13 years past, attending the engine, which draws the pump and ore out of the mine, and his first job in the morning in question was to pump out the water, and as usual to stop the pumps on a signal being given him by the person in care of them at the bottom of the mine. Um, when the water was all drawn out, the signal to stop was repeatedly given, but not being attended to. The pump master proceeded to the engine house to ascertain the cause, but poor Millican could nowhere be seen, and the engine was immediately stopped. So the pump chap works at the bottom of the mine. When he's been signalling to Thomas Millican to switch the pump off and start winching, start lifting rock up, it hasn't changed, it's still pumping, and it's pumping fresh air now because the water's all gone. He's had to climb up thousand plus feet of ladders. You can imagine how angry he probably was when he got up here to give Thomas Milligan a hard time. But the article goes on to describe what he found. Um, Poor Milliken could nowhere be seen and the engine was immediately stopped when Milliken was discovered at the bottom of the wheel pit. In the inside, his body literally torn to pieces and divested of every thread of clothing. The head of the unfortunate man was found completely severed at the outside of the wheel pit. His bowels, having been dashed out, were, with other portions of the body, carried down the watercourse. We will not, however, further pursue our revolting description. Suffice to say that the mutilated remains were carefully collected and deposited in a coffin at the mines to await the coroner's inquest. So what has happened is Thomas Millican's first duty of the day is to ensure that the axle that the wheel turns on is well lubricated and he applies big handfuls of gloopy grease and the grease of the day is whale blubber and we can still see whale blubber splashed around here because um, it's been applied to this axle you know, for many, many years. Thomas Millican has probably leant over to apply a lump of grease to the axle and his clothing's probably been caught in the spokes of this wheel and he's been pulled into the wheel. Now you can imagine how a hamster, when a hamster goes around a wheel inside a hamster cage and it can't quite keep up with the wheel, how it gets sort of thrown around inside the wheel. Sadly, that's what's happened to Thomas. He's been broken on the spokes and all the rivets on the inside of the wheel and his body's been broken into pieces um, so sadly it would have been a pretty gory but probably hopefully quite quick end for him that illustrates the dangers of working with machinery with uh, the gunpowder that i described earlier with the big shafts with the rocks and and the winching and pumping equipment men lost their lives here so we, we should always remember that whilst this was a huge triumph for victorian engineering we can't forget the men women and children who worked grafted wore themselves out and some sadly met their end here in accidents well, he was 63 so he's quite an elderly gentleman yeah so typically men would work until they were no longer capable of working underground you know to walk up and down a thousand foot of ladders to start your shift you need to be still fairly agile thomas milliken has actually survived well beyond the normal life expectancy of a miner at that time he's in his 60s and he's been given a task administering to this wheel is not heavy duty he doesn't have to climb ladders he doesn't have to carry heavy bowels and hammers down into the bowels of the mine and climb up at the end of the shift um, but nevertheless it's still a dangerous task and sadly he's a good example of those dangers interesting to see the whale blubber because listeners if you do come here it is just very obvious this gray material looks like tar on the southerly wall and uh, there's a wad of it set into where the 
axle would have gone across on this northerly bit. Fascinating to see. I would have never guessed what that was. This was a, a scene of great industry and a quite considerable population, five, six hundred people. Uh, so they all had to live somewhere, but this was all a buzz. It was a, it was a town in the hills. Yeah, I mean, Coniston that we see today is largely the product of this industrial era. All the housing, all those terraces of, of housing that uh, are on the banks of Coniston, banks meaning the hillsides around the Coniston village centre, they were the homes of the miners and the quarrymen. So we, we shouldn't forget that the slate quarrying industry is also going in parallel with the history of the mines, certainly in the 19th century. Um, and Coniston was basically an industrial town, not an agricultural town. And everybody who worked at the mine and then all the people who worked in the village, all the services for them, all the transport services and obviously feeding and clothing and, and, and housing all the, uh, the men, women and children who worked up here. When the mine starts to um, decline in the second half of the 1800s and towards the uh, end of the 1800s, thankfully a new industry starts growing then and that's tourism. The railway that was put in in the 1850s to allow copper to leave Coniston and slate to leave Coniston more efficiently than to be boated down the lake, which required multiple loadings and unloadings. Once the railway arrived in the late 1850s, that initially was fundamentally for industrial purposes. But then towards the end of the 1800s, tourists start arriving and uh, we see plenty of evidence of hotels being built and small inns that supplied drink to the miners become bigger inns to supply food and, and drink and accommodation to the Victorian tourists that now find this the green idyll. And I often wonder how hard it is today to imagine just how industrial this was. The noise, the clanking, the water, the explosions, the horses, the carts. This was a thriving industry with all the associated pollution and, and, and hardship. But now we walk around it and it's at peace. You just have to use a bit of imagination to still see the work done by those men, those women and those children and what they've left us today. When I look at this monster wheel and I look at Red Del Beck, I know it's summer, uh, but there's barely any water in it and it's quite a shallow headwater. So where on earth does sufficient water come to power an enormous wheel like this? That's a fantastic question, Mark, because it's the secret of success of this mine is the use of water to power all these huge machines. Red Dell just can't hack it. There's no um, natural headstock of water at Red Dell. There's no tarn at Red Dell. The headstock of water is Lever's water. And to get the water from Lever's water, which is one valley over, to Red Dell to power this wheel, took a huge amount of ingenuity and effort. They've basically dug a leet, like a mini canal, all the way around under Colonel Crag or Kennel Crag to bring it across a very steep and bouldery hillside to bring it to this wheel. Having power this wheel, it then flows across the valley to power the other water wheel in the distance over there. And once the water has done its work over there, it then flows back around a shelf, a man-made shelf, all the way back around the hillside, back to almost where it started, back in Lever's Water Beck, where it is there used to power the machinery at Paddy End Mill, which is another processing mill. Once it's done its work at Paddy End, the water then flows back around another channel around the hillside to flow back to Bonser Mill, where it operates the stamping and crushing and sorting machinery there. By that time, the water is absolutely exhausted and it collapses into Church Beck and runs down to Coniston Water. And then the, the heat raises it up into clouds and it comes back down again. <laughs> yes, it recycles. Well, we've heard about this leap. We'd better go and have a look at it. Indeed, follow me. We're pretty high up now. We've uh, followed the leet round uh, onto the regular rough, loose track that leads up to Lever's Water, which was the headwaters to carry uh, all the water that powered all these copper mines. It's a, a fundamental element of it. And from here, on a gorgeous day that it is now, I can see Ingleborough, which is lovely. You can see the Boland Fells, a grand panorama across Gummers Howe and Grisdale Forest and over Coniston Water. And the Scrow, that... Uh, intermediate little hilly knots above the village of Coniston 
and uh, below us uh, the spoil of uh, slate quarrying. Oh, it's a dynamic scene of industry past. Now, I remember when we had George Kitchen, when we went to Weatherlum, he mentioned some story of an IRA bomb up here. There was a bomb. Some mine explorers had recently discovered the infamous bung. There had been a story that when Lever's water was raised up by the miners, they had to block off one of their adits, or the newly raised water would have flowed down the adit and escaped. So they bunged the adit. They built this large, thick, wooden blockage with a big leather element to act as a seal. But nobody knew where that was. Anyway, some mine explorers then discovered that in the 19 i think the 1980s and then one day they went in and they found this huge gas canister sitting in this um level leading towards the bung they didn't know what to make of this they thought what on earth is that doing here and then the next time they went somebody went who said i know what that is that's a bomb apparently this gas canister was stuffed full of fertilizer which is a a sort of rudimentary explosive you could see the fuse that ran to it and clearly the fuse had been lit but had gone out before it had reached the explosives so this was effectively a an attempt to put an explosion in this level the mine explorers then rang the bomb disposal squad the story is that they came fast as they could over from um catrick and um, arrived here, were escorted into the mine, were shown this device, and they confirmed, yes, that's a bomb, it needs to be dealt with. Uh, And the mine explorers worked with the bomb disposal team to to lift this thing out of the mine and brought it up onto the shores of Lever's Water, where there was a controlled explosion. Uh And apparently it went off with an enormous retort, because you can imagine the bowl that is Lever's Water, it echoed around, and apparently there was this huge smoke ring the man who told me about this, I wasn't there at the time, said it was this wonderful smoke ring that just slowly rose up into the sky. He said, I wish I'd taken a photograph of it, but the question was asked, well, who on earth has put this bomb there? And, and a story was created, and, and I don't believe it's a story that's ever been proved, but equally it's never been completely ruled out, that it was actually an attempt to create an explosion that would rupture the way into Lever's water, that would bring the water cascading down the valley and potentially flood Coniston village um, at a time when John Major was apparently visiting uh, the area. To be honest with you, I cannot see how that could possibly work because it's in a tunnel. So if, if you did blast open the bung, the amount of water that could flow out would only be the volume that could flow down this tunnel at any one time. So, okay, it's a decent pipe-sized tunnel. It's, a, but it's like the, the winter flow of the Beck. Absolutely. You know, a very wet day in Coniston puts a hell of a lot of water down Church Beck. You know, nobody gets their feet wet in Coniston Village. So I think the idea that that would have um, washed the Prime Minister away, I think that's um, I think that's a fallacy. My view is that that was a really ridiculous attempt by some people to uh, blow out this bung just to see what was behind it. A very, very ill-judged thing to do, but uh, no that more than that. It was resolved. Well, we come right the way down to where we started, which is the Bonsa Mill, and we can see some evidence of the graduations of stone when it was broken down, and what I deduce to be settling pools. Could you give us a bit of a clue as to what they are? Yeah, so the Bonsa Mill was where really all the rock coming out of the mine was sorted between the waste rock, and we can see the huge spoil heap off to our right, and the valuable rock that was processed such that the copper grains or the copper metal uh, mineral that was in that rock was separated from the worthless rock. And that was a process of crushing using various different scale of crushing machines and then settling ponds and like sieving mechanisms. Every grain of copper was extracted from this rock and they were very ingenious, very laborious process to get the copper out. And what we see today at the Bonsa Mill, it's been quite well preserved it's been really well looked after this mill um, in recent years is the different horizons different shelves on which the machinery was placed because obviously you want gravity to do as much work for you as possible so the rock was moved from one crushing machine to the next 
down slopes and women and children with wheelbarrows and shovels and brushes would be pushing the rock underneath the crushing machines and then on to the next layer of crushing machines and then eventually into the settling ponds where the heavy grains would settle out at the bottom, the lighter grains would literally wash off the top and every now and again the water would be emptied out of that settling pond and the metal bearing grains would be dug out the bottom and bagged up and sent down to the smelter. Could you actually describe those stamping machines, Mark? Yeah, so, so it's a water wheel driving a drive shaft, just like in, a, in an engine, and that drive shaft has cams on it. Sorry, this is getting a bit technical. Those cams, as they turn around, lift up a big, heavy bulk of wood, a vertical piece of timber, and at the end of that piece of timber is a big iron foot. As the machine lifts that up, it would then drop down with gravity and pound anything beneath it and then it's lifted up again by that um, drive shaft and then dropped again so water is the fuel is the energy source that allows all that crushing to go on plus the physical labor of the men women and children moving that rock from one machine to the next right well we'll go beyond the water mill at the bottom there and we'll get to the point where we can actually talk about decline of the industry here Well, we've come next to what I would describe as a, an adit or a portal adjacent to the Bonson Mill. Uh, there's a stream coming out of it. This is right at the bottom of the mine process. So what is this, Mark? This is a really important piece of infrastructure for the mine. This is the entrance to deep level or horse level. It was known by both words. It's called deep level because it's the lowest entrance on the mine set. So this is the one that all the water drains out of. All the miners go in to work in the mine in here and all the rock and ore comes out of here, pulled by horses. So horses are going in and out of this section of the entrance to, into the mine. And this ran all the way through the whole mine set for nearly two miles. Sadly, it's all collapsed in there today and uh, very, very dangerous. But it was an absolutely critical part of the mine and the rest of the history of the mine from late 1820s onwards really relied on this entrance Everything went in, everything came out of here. But let me tell you one story about here that I think brings to life almost the working of this mine. I said that the Bonsa Mill behind us was operated largely by women and children. The men worked underground, the women and children worked on the surface, or the older men. But we know that children worked here at some periods of the mine's operation there was a lot of children and then in the 1860s there became a lot less children as Parliament restricted the use of child labour. But there is a story of one of the young girls that worked here, a girl called Sarah Duke. Now Sarah was only 12 years old and in her lunch break she would come to this entrance, and I described it earlier as the horse entrance, the horse level, and when the horses came out pulling the tubs, the sort of wagons with rock in it, Sarah used to jump onto the back of one of those tubs and get a free ride around the mill. I can just imagine her sort of whooping with delight as she and her other children were having a bit of fun on a sort of free fairground attraction. Now, the mine managers forbade them from doing that because they recognised it was dangerous, but kids would be kids and they ignored those instructions. Sadly, on one day, Sarah fell off the truck and the truck ran over her thigh and she got a really nasty gash on her thigh. Her, her dad and her mother both worked at the mine. They were called and they carried Sarah down to their house in Coniston Village where she was bound up. Dr Alexander Gibson was called to see her. He dressed the wound and she was put to bed. And the doctor went back to see her every couple of days after that and he recognised the early signs of lockjaw. She'd got the tetanus infection. There was no treatment for tetanus in those days, no antibiotics that we would use today. And sadly, she declined over the next week and 10 days after her accident, she died. And let me tell you, it's not a pleasant way to die of lockjaw. Well, that's the death of Sarah Duke. But what are the closing days of the actual mines themselves? Like virtually all mines, it ends with a whimper rather than a bang. So there's a period of fairly steep decline from the 1860s through the 1870s. And as the mine is going deeper and deeper, the cost of operating the mine is getting higher and higher. 
and that was a double problem for the mine because the price of copper was falling. As copper was starting to be imported from South America and from Scandinavia and some parts of Africa, more and more copper was finding its way onto the market, and so the prices of copper were falling. So this mine was having the double whammy of higher operating costs, lower selling prices, and that's the death of any business. During the 70s and 80s, the mine was really running out of steam, running out of money. There was various people thought, we'll make it work, but they didn't. And really, by the beginning of the 1890s, it was all over. The water wheels were switched off, the pumps stopped working, and the mine was allowed to flood. So really, most of the mine today is deep in water. A thousand or more feet of water lies beneath our feet and is lost forever in that water now. Nobody will ever see it again. We understand that it took five years from the day the the pumps were switched off to the day the water eventually flooded all the way up for the mine and started flowing out the entrance that we're standing beside today. Mark, well, that has been an exceptional episode. Just like the one mines, uh, you filled my head with the magic of that time. Magic in a very hard uh, environment, very hard times, but you've explained it superbly, Mark. Uh, um, Take my hat off to you. Uh, It's a remarkable story, and thank you for giving your time to us. Well, you know, as you can probably tell, I'm very passionate about the history of these mining sites in the Lake District, so thank you for listening. journey's end and we're back at the youth hostel the day is totally transformed it was blustery it was a bit rainy when we set out and now beautiful blue sky evening fabulous in fact the forecast in the next couple of three days is going to be outrageous we're going mediterranean i gather I think it's the start of the Cumbrian summer, oh. all three days of it. Oh yeah, that's it. Then we go into autumn. I think the other transformation today, Mark, is you've become Patrick Stewart in, in your <laughs> voice. Yes, it's really weird, this. Every summer I tend to get a husky cold. Trust I'm not inflicting anything on anybody. Well, I think our listeners will be safe. But uh, what I'm more worried about is if our listeners write in and say, oh, I prefer Mark's husky voice to the normal one. There, there might be some tablet I can take. <laughs> Now, the podcast itself, Mark, well, we know that Mark Hatton is a fabulous guest and he didn't disappoint today. I mean, totally transformed my understanding of what really genuinely is an incredible valley. You come here, as he said, you think it's a bit desolate, but once you start scratching the surface, fabulous. The the workmanship, the endeavour over all those centuries is staggering. I I, I was tickled by the whale blubber or whale fat. Incredible, isn't it? But it's still there. Yeah, I I don't know how anybody would have guessed. He said, Mark, talking to me, what do you think that is? And of course you're having the foggish. And you you came up with wood, didn't you? Uh, Well, I thought it was either wood or grease, but that's because I've just read an information panel that said it was grease. Ah, right. So that's how I got it right. But I think that for me, the most incredible thing is these uh, leets. Because effectively they use a single source of water, which is levers water, channel it across into another valley, use it in two or three different wheels, and then channel it back to where it came from. It's incredible. And not only were they digging, you know, elite, I mean, hopefully it's very obvious from the earlier commentary, but you dug these canals out, but below... What's the, fe- what's the crag called? Uh, K- Kennel. Kennel or Colonel Crag. Yeah, they didn't have any room to dig into the crag. It's too rocky. So they built outwards. They effectively built the crag out into thin air to create a canal. It's absolutely incredible. And, and the actual water was extracted from deep down in the shafts by levers that went up the slope into the mountain, down into the bottom a thousand feet and back up... I find that absolutely staggering. I mean, it's... It's definitely not the digital age, is it? No, it's it's properly mind-blowing stuff. Mark always peppers in a few little stories, doesn't he, with a human interest. I mean, I have to say, most of them today, rather tragic. But, mm-hmm. you know, that that's part and parcel of it. Anyway, um, 
that's us done for today, Mark. Our usual housekeeping. This is episode number 80, 80, 86. Is it, I thought it was 85. It is 85, isn't it? Oh, well, is it really? God, I, listeners will tell us. I think it is. I think you might have been right. I think your illness is, uh, is doing terrible things to your memory. Episode number 85 for all previous 84 episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. We're on social media. On Facebook and Twitter, at CountryStride1. If you'd like to support us, three ways to do it. Firstly, you can share the episodes with family and friends who have a, an interest in the Lake District. Secondly, you can buy our guidebooks with a Country Stride feel. So we've got the Threlkeld Walking Companion, the Oldswater Walking Companion. We've got Penny Bradshaw's fabulous walking literary tour of Ambleside. And we've got the Oldswater Way official guide, uh, all available on the same website. Thirdly, you can support us via Patreon for as little as £2 a month, which is the price of... Uh, An ice cream. An ice cream, yeah. Thank you so much to those of you who do pledge some money to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, I think that's about it for today. I think next up, Beatrix Potter. We keep talking about Beatrix Potter, but it is actually been booked now. I think unless there's some terrible tragedy or the weather's awful or that kind of thing, yes, it will happen. So that's the next one. And then trees are boreal matters. That won't bore you at all. No. <laughs> Lots to look forward to, and we very much look forward to you joining us next time on Country Stride.